Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about tone in television writing. Why is tone important? How do you set the tone in your TV script? Let's find out. Welcome back to our Paper Scraps segment, and this week we have some great new Paper Team content that we wanted to highlight for you guys. Yes, so you probably already know that some of our recent traditional episodes of Paper Team have transcripts, specifically the ones with just Nick and I covering the TV writing craft or elements in the TV industry. For example, TV world building can be found at paperteam.co slash 44 transcript. Well, our awesome friend Fiona has also been busy transcribing for us some of our most popular guest episodes. And as of today, you can get the transcripts for a bunch of those episodes. In fact, you can get the episode featuring Simon Taylor discussing joke writing at late night at paperteam.co slash 22 transcript. You can get the transcript for Alison Taffel's episode, who's the writer on Bojack Horseman, and that's available at paperteam.co slash 39 transcript. You can get the transcript for the Gary Sunt episode, who talked about assisting comedy writers at paperteam.co slash 43 transcript. And you can get the transcript from our good friend Hilliard Guess, who is the host of the Screenwriter's Rant Room, talking about breaking in from outside the system at paperteam.co slash 47 transcript. And hopefully we'll have more of those guest episode transcripts to come. But if you really want the transcript of a specific episode, either guest or traditional episode that we haven't done or transcribed yet, please let us know at askipaperteam.co so we sort of know which ones you really care about. And we'll pitch you guys against each other in gladiatorial combat and whoever wins gets the transcript. So it's the Paper Team Thunderdome. <laughs> Two <laughs> scripts enter. One, the one Paper episode. Dome. Oh boy. <laughs> All right, let's uh, define tone. And first of all, why is tone so important? Well, if you think about it, both the show Psych on USA and The Shield on FX are police procedurals, but they are essentially polar opposites of shows. And the, one of the big differences there is the tone that they take. For a closer comparison, think about Psych and The Mentalist. Now, those are two almost identical shows conceptually, but one is a comedy and one is a drama. Again, think about Burn Notice versus Homeland. They're both kind of spy drama, CIA type things but very, very different tones. Even recently, think about the difference between Arrested Development and Ozark. Oh. They both have Jason Bateman playing a similar kind of character trying to hold his family together in the face of money laundering and such, but one is uh, very comedic and one is very dramatic. <laughs> Are you saying Jason Bateman is kind of a subgenre of TV right Essentially. Now? Okay. Tone is essentially how you approach the content, if you think about it. It's not something necessarily as tangible as intense action sequence or cathartic emotional twist or even fun, quippy dialogue. It's kind of all of the above. It's the fabric that binds every other element together in a cohesive unit. You're kind of signaling to the reader or the audience how they should feel about what they're watching. It's like actual tone in conversation. Nice haircut, Nick. I mean, that could be a genuine compliment, maybe not with this tone, but uh, it probably is more of a sarcastic remark. And the same goes for the writing. I mean, you'd think that the fundamental concept of a show would suggest its tone, but that's obviously not the case, as we've just demonstrated. And it's why I often suggest when you're pitching that you just straight out say, this is a comedy, like X meets Y, and you give some tonal comps up top before you get into too much else. You know, sometimes I've made it to the end of someone pitching to me, and I'm like, oh, so this is a drama feature? And they're like, oh, no, no, it's a sitcom. <laughs> so don't be that guy. The same subject matter can be treated two very different ways to comedic or dramatic effect. So this is a story about Jason Bateman and his family trying to uh, do some shitty stuff. But which which one is it? Ooh. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of, there are kind of different kinds of tones, right? I would say like on a rough scale of least serious to most serious, or maybe lighter tone to darker tone. On one end, you have farce, and that's a ridiculous comedy where the rules of reality are heightened and sometimes broken. You end up in improbable or absurd situations. So think about The Simpsons, Man Seeking Woman, Community, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Then you got grounded comedy or dramedy, and these are shows that adhere to the rules of the real world, usually character-driven pot boilers. So love on Netflix or transparent or casual. Moving along that scale towards drama, you got the blue sky dramas. Uh, USA was really famous for these. Burn Notice, Psych, Royal Pains, that kind of thing. It's still a drama, but it's kind of lighthearted. Our characters tend to find their way out of these sticky situations for more or less a happy ending. And then you've got the uh, the gritty realism. Gritty. Gritty. Like The Shield, Sons of Anarchy, Breaking Bad, obviously, Mr. Robot, The Walking Dead. These are always kind of bleak, no-holds-barred, hyper-realistic shows where anyone can die at any moment. And the worst will usually happen. Yeah, and of course, there are infinite levels in between all of these. These are kind of rough signposts of these extremes. For example, a CW superhero show is probably somewhere in between blue sky drama and gritty realism. The stakes are maybe higher than blue sky, but the drama is still kind of treated a little bit irreverently. A multicam comedy like Big Bang Theory might not be absurdist farce, but it's also not really invested in real character drama and change like a dramedy might be. And then you have these kind of dark comedies, which mash together pieces of both ends of that extreme, like maybe Fargo or Bojack Horseman. For the past decade, we've been in kind of like an era where everything is gritty. Perhaps this is a reaction to the camp of the 80s and 90s. Do you have your slap bracelet on, Nick? <laughs> yeah, we got those ones at Comic-Con. Oh, I guess so, the Wired Cafe. That is a trend that has been taken almost to the extreme with content that, in my mind, shouldn't necessarily be gritty being turned into wannabe edgy content. Just because you're writing a drama pilot doesn't mean it has to be gritty. I think that is actually one of the most common mistakes with people's first pilot or script. They want it to be dark and edgy, but it's a bit like your emo phase in high school. When you look back on it, it's more cringe-inducing than a deep commentary about humanity. A lot of people confuse that gritty realism with moral complexity or character dilemmas. But as we are exploring in this very episode, gritty is just one tone. It's a way of expressing that moral complexity. It isn't moral complexity in of itself. American Crime Story on FX is dark and emotionally complex with great character work, but I don't actually consider it gritty. The bleak, hopeless, desperate perspective of grittiness may fit your concept, but be aware that there are a lot of nuances in tone. And I honestly feel like that whole gritty, dark stage of stuff has just been so overdone by now that it's on its way out, and I suspect we're probably going to see a new influx of more blue sky drama and things like that because of the state that the world is in at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. We were in such a time in Obama's presidency where everything was pretty good, and so we're like, oh, we need our fix of dark, gritty things. Let's turn to TV. And now we're in a Trump presidency, and things are kind of going the other the way. Gritty way. And now we need that escapism and that lightness again. Absolutely. And so one thing that I would comment, uh, and this might just be a personal view of mine, but I think that a lot of tone in a show can come down to the stakes. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen to these people in this world? What's at risk or what's on the line if the dramatic action succeeds or fails? Is it just embarrassment or ridicule or disappointment? Then it's probably a lighthearted or comedic show. Is it actual permanent death or complete destruction of your life? Then maybe it's a more serious drama. Definitely agree that the kind of stakes in the balance of those stories is an important factor in establishing tone, but how those stakes are being perceived is also a major part of tone for me. I mean, the Coen brother movies are notorious for their sudden death of major characters coming out of left field. Just watch Burn After Reading to see what I mean. I mean, the stakes are clearly established as being truly life or death. 
Spoiler alert. For example, you've got a lead character played by Brad Pitt who gets shot to death in a wardrobe out of nowhere halfway through the movie. But the tone is still light overall because the emphasis isn't on what happens to those characters. These major stakes are being derided, which again furthers the tone of the movie as an absurdist black comedy. Let's get dark and gritty and let's discuss how to set up and establish the tone of that show. I mean, tone, as we've said before, can be layered into and signaled by many elements of your story. It's kind of a meta quality that filters over or through everything else. And let's start off with world or setting. I think that where the story takes place can instantly set the tone in those first few moments. I mean, that's what establishing shots are for. It's like, here's where we are and here's what it's like. Are we in a crowded inner city slum surrounded by high-rise apartments? Well, maybe we're in modern-day New York in Marvel's Daredevil. But wait, there's lots of neon lights and a futuristic hologram billboard. Maybe we're actually in the near future in Blade Runner. But wait again, everything is in bright colors and animated. We're actually watching Futurama. Ooh. So see the difference in just those few descriptive elements that can transform something into a completely different show altogether. Now, I would say that the director and the DP contributes a lot to setting the tone of the show through the visuals as well. Once it's in production, what kind of color palette do they choose the lighting is everything well lit and bright colors or is it dark and filled with shadows is everything kind of cold grays and blues or is it warm rosy reds and yellows and greens i think you can and probably should attempt to suggest this in your writing in one way or another so that they get that message i mean compare two high school shows riverdale to the oc very oh, different. for sure yeah i mean it goes kind of back to the idea of what makes a good opener compelling it's about conveying what the show is in the most efficient way possible. And for effective ways of conveying the tone in a short amount of time, I actually suggest looking at the pre-credit opening scenes of some of the best more modern movies. For example, Whiplash has kind of this fantastic teaser-esque opener that conveys everything you need to know about the type of story you're watching, but also the tone of that story. Yeah, it's a brilliant movie. It's one of my favorites of all time. And I think also the opener of Desperate Housewives was very effective at establishing the satirical tone of the show regarding its setting. It kind of opens on a housewife doing her housewife duties, and then she proceeds to kill herself within a minute or two of the show starting. So that is really effective. And even just looking at the visuals from the opening credits of Desperate Housewives and the music, that also can give you a sense of the tone. Danny Elfman made the theme music for the show, and obviously he's really well known for his specific specific brand of music and the credits much like the show itself are kind of a blend of surrealism and retro by mixing and matching well-known desperate women within fine art from the dawn of time until today and so another element of story in which you can kind of sprinkle this tone through is character a show that actually has been really successful at re-establishing the tone of itself over and over again is Doctor Who. With every new Doctor and incidentally new showrunner, the feel of that show evolves. The modern reboot of Doctor Who in 2005 had to kind of reset expectations of what the series could be since it was off the air for so long. Christopher Eccleston was a fairly dark Doctor compared to what the show had brought before. I mean, the ninth Doctor suffered from PTSD and was frightened of what he could do. This was ingrained in his relationship with Rose, his companion in the show. And the 10th Doctor, the next Doctor, played by David Tennant, was a reaction to just that. Tennant's Doctor was the Doctor Eccleston could not have been for Rose. 
Tennant's doctor was a little bit awkward, nerdy, and yet still a bit charming. And with that change of perspective, the show had to kind of balance itself out, kind of like a pendulum, and evolve and fit that new tone. And obviously, Matt Smith, his doctor, arrived, and then the show became kind of a literal fairy tale. It was a very big shift. It was a very big tone shift because they needed to match the sensibility of the doctor and the feel of the new genre. And even within a single season of Doctor Who, you can see that tone shift. I mean, the tone will change dramatically depending on the setting of that particular episode. It's a show about a time-traveling doctor, so by definition, it will shift tone and approach almost on an episode-by-episode basis. Yeah, I think the kinds of characters that you populate your show with are perhaps one of the most important aspects of setting the tone. Like we've said, TV is a character's medium. And there's this saying that comedic characters always think they're in a tragedy. It's just that the audience realizes the ridiculousness of their situation. I mean, think of Seinfeld. It was never funny to George what he was going through, but from an outside perspective to us, it's hilarious. So I'm not saying that characters in comedy need to be wisecracking joke factories all the time, or even be aware of the comedy in the world around them. But I would say in general, more often than not, comedic characters are the ones cracking those jokes and getting laughs up against those more straight man foils and antagonists. Even in a very dark and gritty world, having even one character, say our protagonist, push back against that with some irreverence, think of uh, the show Constantine, that fundamentally adjusts the tone of the show. I would also say that specificity in character and voice helps set the tone. Again, think of Fargo. These characters are distinctive small town types, and their lexicon and their mannerisms help establish them as somewhat good-hearted and naive in the face of what's to come, which is murder and much darker things. Or in Supernatural on the CW, we have a brother, Dean, who is fairly stoic and shows no emotion, and he's the type who gets his job done and gets on with it. Then the other brother, Sam, is kind of less desensitized to these vampires and demons and conflicts, so it allows the audience to both understand the tone of the world and these characters' place within it compared to how the everyday people in the world might react if they knew what was lying in the shadows. So we covered the world and the characters. How can we set the tone through plot? Well, we've already kind of hinted at this idea that establishing tone within the story is a lot about either confirming or changing the viewer or the reader's expectation of how you're approaching the narrative. Six Feet Under, one of my favorite shows, did a really good job at establishing that dark humor within the show itself. In the pilot, the story juxtaposes the hokiness of Christmas time celebration with the sudden death of Nathaniel Fisher in a hearse. Even the first five minutes of the pilot are kind of a masterclass at establishing characters as well as the tone of the series itself. The literal opening scene of the episode and the show is a fake ad for hearse. And that immediately sets the kind of dark humor tone that the show is known for. And then we cut to Nathaniel Fisher in the hearse and him getting pummeled by a bus single tier. Yeah, I think on a fundamental level, the types of stories that you're willing to explore in your show are going to be indicative of the tone. Are the episodes always, say, zany escapades around a college campus, getting into trouble with pranks and parties and road trips? Well, then you're probably not going to have a dead body show up in episode five, and suddenly this cast of characters has to solve the murder of one of their close friends. Or you're probably not going to have a storyline dealing with one of the teachers at the college being arrested for child pornography. You know, you've set the tone of this show, and that puts limitations on the subject matter of the stories that you can reasonably tell within this mold. I would argue that the only shows that can pull that kind of transition off are shows where you have an idea of the tone, but it's not written down in cement. So for example, Veronica Mars was a show about a high school detective. So on the pure surface level, you would expect, oh, it's kind of these like teeny drama episodes. But really, the show explored the dark underbelly of high school, and that included actual serious issues as rape and murder. And those elements were hinted at in the pilot already. So it's really important to set that initially. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they suddenly 
went into murder in episode seven, they've probably already shown that even though we're in this light high school world, that seems like we're really going to be delving into the darkness of that in this first few episodes. Or there are some shows that actually gradually build to it. I think Bojack Horseman is a good example of that. It starts off, you think it's going to be this like sitcom about a washed up former sitcom star from the 80s and the 90s. And, and oh, no, he's going to be running into trouble trying to get work. But then it really builds and builds until it gets to a darker place and it earns it. It doesn't just suddenly shift for no reason. I mean, that's why I love Bojack Horseman. But to be fair, I think that's one of the many reasons why a lot of people initially got turned off by it was because they started watching the show and they assumed incorrectly, but just based on the first five episodes, oh, it's essentially an American dad or edgy Fox cartoon, when in fact, it's a drama disguised as a comedy. And I think they pulled that off because it was on Netflix. And so people could binge it in one sitting or two sittings. And I don't think that's something that can be replicated easily on network TV, for example. No, not at all. I think you have to be very careful with those tonal shifts. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But I would say as a general rule, try to stay consistent in your tone throughout in the kind of plots and stories you tell. You know, we're not going to see Breaking Bad suddenly take off uh, for some lighthearted shenanigans in Vegas with Walt and Jesse a la The Hangover without maybe the police and cartel bursting in and reintroducing real <laughs> conflict and drama again. Again, it's kind of back to that, that stakes question. The stakes in a lighthearted drama or comedy are often much lower objectively than a hardline drama. You need to keep those stakes consistently around the same level of ballpark. Otherwise, it's like whiplash for a viewer. A sudden jump into a story with life or death stakes in a comedy invalidates the significance of all of their previous storylines, and it kind of makes it impossible to go back to that lightheartedness again. Likewise, a departure from life or death stakes in drama makes us wonder why we should care about whether this guy makes it to a concert on time now when he was struggling for his life in the previous episode. I mean, you talk about whiplash for a viewer, there's a reason why the fly episode in Breaking Bad is so polarizing, and that is because the stakes, the trauma is virtually absent in the entire episode. It's it's a character piece where two people are in a room. It's a bottle episode. And the only stake is, will this piece of information about Walter White be revealed in this episode, and will they kill the fly? That's essentially what the entire episode is about. And the stakes are drastically different from the rest of the show. And viewers, I think, were put off by that. Some people loved it because, you know, Ryan Johnson directed it and all these different elements. But it's not really a true Breaking Bad episode if you were to boil down what Breaking Bad is about. Yeah, those kinds of tonal shifts when they're done like that are very deliberate and almost experimental. And you do risk alienating your viewers. On the very special episode of Breaking Bad, we catch a fly. <laughs> <laughs> now let's take a look at the next element, and that is dialogue and humor. I'd say the obvious element for setting your tone within dialogue is jokes. You know, if you have a high frequency of them and all of the characters in your ensemble are cracking jokes, you're suggesting this is perhaps an irreverent comedy. Now, drama can use jokes as an occasional tool to bring levity to a serious moment and break the tension, or as more of a kind of a character element. You have the one character who is comic relief. But they're not doing it anywhere near as often, and usually it will be limited to certain characters or occasions. Otherwise, like we said, it's going to be tonally inconsistent or dissonant with this serious subject matter. It's about setting those expectations early. If we know early on the show runs that gamut from serious life and death to lighthearted reverence frequently, like you said before, six feet under, then it won't feel inconsistent. You can't just spring that on us in episode three. Yeah, and I would also say that what you shine your light on, in other words, the content of the dialogue is also a big part of establishing tone. Is something meta or aware of itself? Does the story live in a world where specific concepts do not exist for comedic or suspenseful effect? Think about the zombie genre and specifically why the concept of a zombie 
does not exist in many of those stories. You'll never hear the word zombie said in The Walking Dead to make these creatures initially more menacing. Of course, by now we've seen many zombie shows and movies using that trick so the trick is less effective, but a character knowing all the zombie tropes in a zombie movie will by definition make the story more self-reflective. I mean, compare Stargate SG-1 to Farscape. Farscape is all about pop culture references made by our main character and those meta jokes build on some of the humorous, zany tone of the show. Stargate, however, although it pays a lot of homages to science fiction, I mean, within the show itself, the characters do not hang a lantern on that same idea. Even the nerdy Daniel Jackson is never going to make a reference to a Star Trek episode as a joke on a daily basis. The tone of the show and its stakes are relatively serious, albeit with this kind of fun adventure undertone. And the only two Stargate SG-1 episodes that stick out in my mind are the 100th and 200th episode of the show, where they specifically go all meta-joke on you and self-referential. But again, they're borderline comedy episodes instead of the drama you're used to. I love those episodes so much because they become referential of their own show, not just other shows like Star Trek. And yeah, it's a really funny exactly. take on them. And they're really the odd episode out. They're not the example of the Stargate episode you would think of. Exactly. They are the very special episodes. I think as well, you can communicate tone and dialogue through more than just jokes. I would say another key element is the pacing. In general, comedy is going to have a much faster paced dialogue as everyone's slinging around quips and accusations and explanations. They bounce off of each other and they keep things moving along. It rarely slows down. And when they do, it is for a more serious or contemplative character scene. And the same goes for soap opera or Shondaland drama. Revelations are coming one after the other and we're packing in plot like there's no tomorrow. Whereas a more gritty drama slows things down, builds a lot of tension. You have scenes that are entirely silent or tense leading up to one line, or they might lead us in with some sparse dialogue and silence to a sudden burst of activity and action. Kind of want to bell every time we say the words Chanda or Aaron Sorkin or Robert McKee. We were talking Dang. about getting a, a soundboard earlier, guys. So we can just like every time we do one of those things, we can just press the button like Shonda. Anyway. And lastly, how dialogue approaches what's happening in the story can tell us a lot about tone, especially with the use of juxtaposition. For example, a funny or reverent dialogue in a very serious situation or overly serious dialogue in a funny or benign situation. Which leads us to our next element to establishing tone, and that is reactions. Are we talking like reaction uh, shots or memes or GIFs? Is that what's happening? <laughs> I think a lot of what demonstrates tone in a world is how the characters and the world around them reacts to certain things happening. For example, violence. In a comedy, violence is probably slapstick and funny. No one really gets hurt, and the characters might laugh, or it's a positive, enjoyable thing for the audience when someone gets punched in the face. Compare that to in a drama, where violence is taken much more seriously, and characters can actually be hurt or killed by it. They, and we, as the audience, react much differently if a character pulls out a knife in a drama. The stakes are inherently higher. In a show like Sons of Anarchy, someone is probably about to die very messily. In a show like uh, Rush Hour, they're probably about to disarm them with some kung fu moves and instantly flip them into a fountain. I mean, that could be one of the reasons why Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was less well-received than its first counterpart. And that's because the stakes didn't feel as real. The characters were being dragged around. I mean, you had a whole sequence with Drax and Nebula trying to hang on a ship as it lands and they keep getting pummeled by these trees as they land and they survive everything without a scratch. So that kind of defeats the whole point of the first movie that everybody's kind of expendable and could die at any moment. I think that's a big issue with a lot of superhero movies. You know that Captain America is never going to die permanently or Spider-Man's not going to die. So like, what can you actually do in these situations to make us worried about them? And that's why shows like Game of Thrones and Walking Dead are so great because 
even though you love these characters and you've spent multiple seasons with them, they actually could die at any moment. Those stakes feel real. So going back to reactions, I think there's also a level to which characters' lack of a reaction to something tells us a lot about the tone. If people are being beaten up and killed all around our protagonist and they don't even blink an eye, it tells you a lot about this world and what our expectations should be for us. It's another feature example, but I recently saw the movie Hitman's Bodyguard, and there's a scene in the bar where Sam Jackson meets Salma Hayek for the first time, and they play it as this kind of love at first sight scene where he sees her in slow motion, but what she's doing is actually brutally killing and maiming a bunch of dudes in a bar in the fight. Like she's stabbing them and cutting their throat open. There's blood going everywhere. She's breaking bottles, setting people on fire. <laughs> and he's 100% unfazed and even endeared to her by it because he's a professional hitman and they're currently in this really tough, lawless bar in South America. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the church sequence in uh, the first Kingsman where uh, yeah. Colleen Firth just kills a bunch of people in slow motion and it's meant as this beautiful piece of cinematic you know, imagery. Yeah, I love those kind of scenes. And it does, it both sets your expectations for the world and creates a juxtaposition of two different elements you wouldn't expect to see together. For sure. Speaking of, kind of, the next element we want to talk about was themes and values. How do you express tone in those ways? I would say that both tonally light and dark shows can explore the same themes. They just explore them in different ways. You know, the way in which the importance of family is explored in The Simpsons is very different to how it's explored in The Sopranos, but they can more or less ultimately arrive at a similar message regardless. Yeah, I mean, I think the upcoming Star Trek Discovery and the Orville will be an interesting exploration of just that. This idea that although you have two very different contrasting tones, you may have the same potential message being delivered to you. And I know a lot of people are kind of wary about Discovery precisely because of the tone that it's projecting. It's going on an OTT provider with CBS All Access in the middle of this gritty post Balshtag Galactica era we live in and is currently getting a lot of flack for being rated TVMA for a Star Trek TV show. And while Star Trek shows have definitely pushed boundaries in terms of nuanced storytelling and moral complexity, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to be gritty to explore those ideals. In fact, the Star Trek franchise has endured precisely because the shows have done the exact opposite. They have not gone the dark and gritty route just for dark and gritty sake, minus the JJ verse. It was only about taking that path to get to that better future. Now, don't get me wrong, Deep Space Nine had a lot of really dark storylines with lead characters bordering on anti-heroes. But again, it was only to highlight how that was not the path to take. You don't need the depressed hero dealing with a horrible traumatic event to make compelling television or even compelling characters. This is in the mirror universe with evil Spock. This is the main timeline. So having an edgy tone just to be marketable defeats kind of the entire point of Star Trek. But we'll have to see where STD or Star Trek Discovery falls in that spectrum. Yeah, it seems like a lot of studios and places are doing this gritty just because we can. Like with the the Mummy movie recently, the original Mummy was so great because it was light and irreverent. Like, no, it has to be dark now. Everything has to be dark. And they're missing completely the point of what people loved about those original franchises. Absolutely. So even though I think concepts and themes can be kind of agnostic of tone, I think to play devil's advocate for a minute, there are certain tools available on either of those tonal extremes that maybe can't comfortably be used by the other. I would say that really only gritty dramas can properly explore the deepest and darkest levels of human struggle and desperation. If you think about the movie Saw, it's kind of how far would you go and what would you do to someone else to save your own life? But conversely, I think that absurdism and farce maybe has access to the powerful tool of satire and parody that can be a lot harder to pull off in those HBO series that take themselves really seriously. You can't do what South Park does while being a serious dramatic show, and I think it delivers its message in a more subversive way where you may not even realize what it's saying. 
I agree, but in my mind, it also comes down to how over-subtle you're trying to be about those themes mixed with what the tone really is. One of the reasons why people watch bad movies like The Room for entertainment is because the movie itself lacks any self-awareness. In an alternate world, maybe The Room could have been a scripted comedy by Judd Apatow and friends with an eye on heightening how bad a movie can be. And in fact, James Franco is essentially making that movie now based on the book that was based on how The Room was made. The Disaster Artist. I'm looking forward to it. Exactly. And on the same level, I mean, people can watch the sequels of Saw and find them to be great comedies specifically because of how ridiculously far they take their initial premise. But again, it's more about almost a mockery of the content rather than earnest sympathy to the content. Yeah, they stop it, like you said, becoming self-aware of how ridiculous they were. And they're taking themselves seriously and being over the top, then instantly you lose that respect or genuineness. Yeah, totally. I mean, I really believe that tone and lack of self-awareness is why you have those kinds of bad movies. It's kind of like that scene in Family Guy where Peter watches The Godfather and says, I didn't like it because um, it insists upon itself. I mean, that is very true of so many big budget action movies. Like you just said, Nick, The Mummy is a perfect example of that. They don't understand what made The Mummy 99 version successful. And that was that campy sense of adventure, not super serious, gritty world building. Yeah, it's a great phrase, the insists upon itself. Yeah, Yeah. I use it all the time, including this very podcast. Did you know, Nick, that we insist upon ourselves all the time? We insist upon paper team. (laughs) In fact, I mean, movies and shows that age well, are ones who know not just what they're about, but also know how they approach what they are about. Minus some references, Arrested Development and Friends have aged really well specifically because they knew how they were approaching their stories and delivered on that promise and that tone. You probably cannot say the same thing about Nameless Family Single Cam number 47 or Nameless Friends Multicam number 54. It's kind of the generic crap that we've seen over and over again. And another element I think that people might not think about because it's more or less outside of writer's control is the marketing of a show. Think of like the poster and the advertising or even the name of the show. All of that suggests a tone. Is the name of the show a joke or a double entendre? It's probably a comedy. Is it something gritty or mysterious? Then maybe it's drama or genre show. Are the, are the characters in the poster leaning back to back with their arms crossed, smiling? <laughs> That's a comedy in most cases. Or is it a dark cityscape with a superimposed face over the top of it? Maybe that's a drama. Ooh. What would be our poster, Nick? I think we would be leaning back to back, smiling, looking at the camera, and then there's like a screenplay in the background and a typewriter or something like that. It's like the worst version of uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, it's like a buddy buddy cop. Oh, boy. <laughs> procedure. (laughs) Party cut procedural. Okay, great. Honestly, that's kind of why, in my mind, a lot of good movies fail to get traction at the box office. They're being sold to the wrong audience or the wrong way. Some shows also fail because of their title or how they're being presented. Just a few years ago, you may not remember this, but there was this FX show called Terriers. Well, there's an appropriate time for the dog to bark. (laughs) Dog barking. He was like, I love that show. (laughs) Well, I mean, Terriers starred Donald Logg and Michael Raymond James. And it was one of the best written fun crime stories in my mind. And it was about this pair of unlicensed private investigators in San Diego taking down small time crooks while obviously wrestling with their own demons. And Terriers, if you get it, is a clever title. 
But that's why it is a bad title. If you think about it, you have to understand the premise of the show to just understand the title of it. And Terrors honestly isn't a very attractive name. It doesn't really give a sense of what the show is about on the basic narrative level. So unsurprisingly, the show never got past its first season, even though it was critically acclaimed. Yeah, you kind of want it to be the other way around. You want the title to give you a clear idea of what the show is, not have to understand the show to get the title. Exactly. It's funny, I used to work in a movie theater when I was younger, and I would get to see the audience's reaction to their expectations firsthand. And the one that always sticks out in my mind was Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd. (laughs) So the trailers that they released for this up until like a week beforehand did not include any music in them. They were marketing it to people as more or less a straight up horror thriller type drama. So (laughs) we ended up having all these teenage boys showing up wanting to see people's throats getting cut open. And the second Johnny Depp started belting out Sondheim (laughs) lyrics, they literally threw their popcorn going all over the seats, which I had to clean up, and they stormed out dissatisfied and tried to get their money back. Wow. It was literally like going to see the room. People throw popcorn on the screen. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, on the comedy side, it, one of the most notorious bad title for a good show is Cougar Town. They even went as far as retitling the show themselves every week in their own opening credits as a recurring gag because it was that big of an issue. The show started as this comedy about a man-hungry older woman, but quickly transitioned into a more earnest show about a close group of friends and neighbors living in Florida. So there's a clear tonal dissonance there that I'm sure we'll get into really soon. So again, while you as a writer might not have control over how your show is marketed if it's picked up, at the very least you can think about even the title of your script. That's going to tell people a lot when they sit down and they open it up and look and what expectations you're setting about them. I also recommend there's a TV movie. I don't know if you, well, not a TV movie, a movie about TV called The TV Set. I don't know if you've seen it, Nick. It's with David Duchovny. It came out maybe a decade ago. Essentially, it's about this comedy writer attempting to bring his vision for a TV show to fruition on the small screen, but obviously gets hit by all the issues you may think of when you think of networks or production companies or marketing campaigns and all these issues. So it's kind of a, a fun look behind the scenes of how a TV show is made. So earlier on, we touched on this notion of tonal shifts. Let's talk a little bit more about these shows that have gone to, on to mixed tones or shift tones. What does that do? Well, I mean, some shows have a problem that I like to call tonal dissonance, or as Arnold Schwarzenegger would say, tonal recall. <laughs> uh, these are shows that have an established tone, but then undergo some kind of creative change, which leads to a tonal shift. In essence, the show you're watching towards the latter seasons is very different from what you were watching at the beginning. I feel like this happens a lot more frequently in comedies where you have a first season with maybe a lot of heart with some occasional zany moments and then it kind of evolves into a completely zany show with barely any emotions in it. I mean, it happened to my favorite show, The Simpsons, and even a term from that show was coined to denote that, and it's called flanderization. I think we've spoken about it before on the podcast. In that example, it was speaking about how a character used to be a fairly balanced, nuanced person who just had one particular element. He was a religious man, and he was you know pretty well put together and, and whatever, but then he went on to become a caricature of himself over and over and over again, where he was just completely ridiculous. And the same thing does become true of sitcoms a lot of the time. So with The Simpsons, it used to have quite a lot of heart. And I would say in season one, there was sometimes more heart than jokes. And then it hit that sweet spot from seasons two through to nine or 10 or wherever you like to draw the line, where it managed to get that balance really well. But then after that, it started to trend more towards this family guy tonality when that was in vogue. And it really kind of lost what made it work in those later seasons. 
And funnily enough, Full House went the other way. Now, that started out when it first came out as more of your typical sitcom. And then I got gradually more and more family focused. And it was trying way too hard to send a message to people to the point where it was just hammy. <laughs> What's the message we can give those people in this very episode of Fuller House? Have you seen the, the Netflix show? Fuller House? Yes. No, I never really. like. Full House is one of those things that was like an American cultural touchstone for people. And we never had it there. And everyone's like, oh, my God, it's I have a crush on this guy from the thing. And I'm like, I've never seen the show. Like, Same thing here. Not in France. So I guess we'll never talk about Full House on this <laughs> show again. One thing to look out for in terms of tonal shift and tonal recall is regarding franchises or spinoffs or those kind of shows with universes. One example is The Practice, and for that matter, the same could be said about most David E. Kelly shows, and that is The Practice went through a transition of starting out somewhat gritty and realistic, and it ended up being this kind of goofy, bizarre trial case show. Boston Legal, the spinoff, completed that transition by adding some comedic elements. That was a spinoff for concept. That? Yeah, Boston Legal. Wow. They all, they're all spinoffs of one another. It's such a different uh, show from it. Yeah. Totally. And the whole universe shifted from uh, being a serious legal drama to a primetime soap, and then finally to a dramedy with that spinoff. If you watch an early episode of The Practice and compare it to a later episode of Boston Legal, that tonal shift will be jarring. But to be fair, I feel like it was done effectively through those years. In the practice, did they do like the crazy like zoom ins on the camera and pulls out and like that no, kind of visual they style? Really do that. I mean, yeah. the visual style actually changed with the spinoffs and all those different shows. But I mean, to be fair, Ellen Mobile was kind of zany early on, but it really the went full baby. zany. Exactly. And that was much later in the show. And one of the most infamous examples of this tonal recall problem is the Baywatch franchise, if you can call it that. Baywatch started as a fun action romp, and then a spinoff was created called Baywatch Nights. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but if you're not familiar with Baywatch Nights, this is a real thing, people. Well, it's an, as awful as it sounds. The resident police officer of Baywatch, since the beginning of the show, decides to quit his job as a police officer and form a detective agency. And although Baywatch Nights started as a crime procedural, the producers decided to switch the format of the series in the second season to a science fiction show inspired by the success of the X-Files. What? I know, right? I mean, you may ask yourself, I keep asking this myself every day, every day. Why? Who was this for? What is the it's point like of the show? sharks jumping over other sharks. Like yeah, I mean, they didn't even know either who the show was for because Baywatch Nights was canceled after its second season. So that's the whole point is you can clearly see here this tonal dissonance at play throughout the entire franchise. On one hand, you have Baywatch. It's, you know, this campy action show. And on the other hand, you have Baywatch Nights, which is, I guess, an edgy paranormal crime drama. <laughs> I mean, who's the target audience that's going to cross over with <laughs> both shows? Who takes a show and it's like, why don't we do Baywatch, but with none of the life saving on the beach during the day? <laughs> <laughs> and aliens. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we take this show, but then take away literally everything that makes the show and make it a different show? Let's do the complete opposite. Why don't you just make a new show? <laughs> Challenge accepted. I mean, essentially, no pun intended, you're actually alienating viewers on either side of that spectrum by doing something that is tonally completely dissimilar to what they tune in to watch. I mean, you can say what you want about CSI and NCIS, but they are tonally consistent. They know the content that they're producing and they're very successful at it specifically because a viewer who tunes in to see CSI New York or CSI Miami or NCIS New Orleans or whatever won't be confused by that tone. And that is what tone is ultimately about. It is the invisible mesh that connects all your elements of the show, be it dialogue, character, Story, world, 
theme, values. It's about understanding how you are approaching that content. And that is equally as important as knowing what you are creating in the first place. All right, Nick, what are some takeaways for this episode? So number one, tone sets audience expectations for your show, and it's reflected in all aspects of story, from character to themes to plot to the world of the show itself. Number two, tone can range from forest to grounded dramedy to blue sky drama to gritty realism and everything in between. Be aware of where your story fits on that scale. Number three, it's important for shows tone to remain consistent both within the episode and across a whole series. Do you have any resources for our listeners this week, Alex? Well, once again, I'm going to be going back to my trusted TV Tropes website for my resource this week. The website has actually a great series of articles and a bunch of lists specifically relating to tone shift that I will be linking in the show notes. And maybe it's a light comedy show becoming darker and more dramatic, or maybe it's a show getting further away from its original concept. Either way, I feel like anybody listening to this should take a look at some of their examples, and you will really get a good sense as to what creates and constitutes tone in TV shows. Sometimes the best thing you can do is look up examples of what not to do. (laughs) Exactly. And that brings us to the end of the episode. So thanks again, everyone, for taking the time to listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 60. And in a couple of weeks, you'll be able to get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 60 transcript. If you'd like to leave a review, we need them more than oxygen. So <laughs> please go to paperteam.co slash iTunes, and that will help us out in a big, big way. And I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinion, uh, tonal accents, I guess, from foreign languages. We're talking about tones like in the Mandarin. I know they have tonal shifts. If you want to send us some swatches of color tones or something, Ooh, I don't know. That'd be nice. Send us like uh, some some whole tones, some half tones of music, whatever you want. You can send all those tones at ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week, Nick? Well, next week, we're going to take a look at teasers slash cold opens and how you can write an effective beginning to your script. And we'll see you next week. See you then. <laughs>